This morning we'll be reading from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 32, verses 36 through 41. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant, that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness, with all my heart and all my soul. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 15. We're going to be reading the entirety of Luke 15 this morning. If you're joining me in your pew Bibles, you can find it on page 874. Uh, And as you turn there, we're going to talk for a minute about tires. Yeah, tires. It it might not be a rousing subject to many of you, and it certainly wasn't to me. Back in uh, a, a while ago, I was preparing to go into ministry, and simultaneously, one of my best friends was preparing to go into engineering. And as part of his engineering curriculum, he had to do an internship. He got an internship at Mercedes-Benz, which is an amazing place to work if you are into cars. So he's, he's working at Mercedes-Benz, and I call him on the phone and I say, how's it going? And he says, they've got me researching tires. Uh, tires. At Mercedes-Benz, to me that sounded just like the most most boring thing that you could possibly study at this really cool car place. And so I asked, man, that's that's different. How's that going? Uh, And he said, in, in one phrase that just stunned me, he said, I love it. I love it. And he he really did. He he was passionate about tires. The, the more that we talked on the phone that day, and he would, he would keep bringing it up in conversation, he would just kind of constantly say, do you have any idea how amazing tires are? Do you have any idea how amazing the technology that goes into those things, all the things that we do to tires and ask of them, these things are absolutely incredible. So his passion for tire technology enabled him to, uh, to overcome what seemed to me uh, to be tedious and tiring work, uh, just an utterly tedious, tiring task. And now you may be wondering, what did tires have to do with Luke 15? And here's the connection between tires and Luke 15. I underestimated my friend's love for tires in the exact same way that we underestimate God's love for sinners. We habitually underestimate how much God loves sinners. Over the past two sermons, we've seen that kingdom character involves 
mercy and generosity. It involves giving grace to people who do not deserve grace. Uh, and, and it's easy when you're giving grace to people who don't deserve grace, it's easy to feel like grace is tedious and tiring work. It can get under our skin. It makes us feel exhausted. We begin to think very quickly, do I have to keep doing this? Do I have to keep showing grace to this person or to these people? Uh, do I need to keep up this tedious, trying work? And if we feel that way about other people, it is very easy to start thinking that way about God's feelings towards us. If we get tired of giving grace to other people, we can easily start wondering, does God feel the same way about me? Does God ever get tired of showing me grace? Does God get tired of forgiving me? Does God get tired of the work of giving grace to sinners? And Luke 15 is his answer to that question. In this particular passage, Jesus is being confronted by scoffers, people who had no clue why Jesus would constantly welcome these rotten, no-good sinners into his presence and Jesus gives a similarly stunning answer in these three parables. He says, I love it. Why do I keep doing this? It's because I love it. I love the work of redemption. This passage that we're about to hear is a wonderful, gorgeous picture of God's absolute joy in salvation. God doesn't consider grace tedious. God doesn't consider grace to be trying work. No, God joyfully seeks sinners. God joyfully forgives sinners. And God joyfully restores sinners. And that is good news for you and for me. So let's hear now God's holy word to us in Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, 
Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. But he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this delightful passage of lost things found. And we ask that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word and the preaching of your word and the hearing of your word. Enable us to see your heart for sinners like us. And I pray that this message would give all of us humility and repentance and joy. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Luke chapter 15 is one of Jesus' most robust 
defenses of his ministry. You've heard the context already in verses 1 and 2. All manner of tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus, and they wanted to hear his preaching, and they wanted to be near him so that they could learn more about him and receive the grace that he was offering And the religious elites at the time completely resented it. That's what's happening in this text. There's resentment about Jesus' mercy. Tax collectors were Jews who worked for the Roman government, and they became rich by extorting money from their fellow Jews. Absolutely unacceptable. Sinners were people who didn't devote themselves fully to following all of the Old Testament law. Again, absolutely unacceptable. Both sinners and tax collectors were completely repulsive to the religious leaders, and so it made no sense to them why Jesus would welcome them with such hospitality. And so the Pharisees, the scribes, they grumble. They complain out loud about Jesus in clearly derogatory ways that this man, this this man receives sinners and even eats with them. Why would someone who claims to be a holy man have such intimate fellowship with sinners? Jesus answers that question with three parables that teach one truth. Three parables, one truth. It brings God joy to save sinners. It brings God joy to save sinners. God joyfully searches for them. God joyfully searches for sinners. These stories tell about valuable things that have been lost. Verse 4, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. Or verse 8, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. Verse 24, The father, this my son was dead. This my son was lost. So the shepherd loses one of his 100 sheep. And, and, and he lost it in the worst place possible. He's out in the wilderness, the open country, the Israelite wilderness, a dangerous place. A dangerous place, especially at night. There's all kinds of rocky crags and valleys and hills and predators. This sheep is in serious danger. Uh, The woman loses one of her ten coins. The coin that Jesus is describing is a drachma. It's roughly equivalent to an entire day's wage, which would be a huge amount and a tragic loss for someone of humble means like this woman seems to be. And the father lost one of his two sons. He's, He's lost. The younger son cuts off all ties with his household. He asks for his inheritance now. Again, the things that would be coming to him after the father's death. He's basically saying to the dad, why don't you go ahead and treat me as if you were already dead? And then he takes all of it, he packs up all of his stuff, and goes away 
to a far country, long time before social media, texting, no way to communicate at all. He is as good as dead, even if he's still alive. These are tragic losses, absolutely tragic, heartbreaking losses. And the only appropriate response is to seek for them. The only natural response for a loss of this tragic nature is to seek what was lost. The shepherd leaves the flock and goes out into the darkness to find the missing sheep. The woman lights a lamp and sweeps the whole house, searching diligently. And the father, well, the father doesn't go after his son. He doesn't chase him down because likely that would push the son further away. Uh, but the, son, the father doesn't ever give up on his son. No, he constantly is on the alert for him. He's not searching for the son in the far country. He's at home searching the horizon. He's constantly looking for any hint of his boy on the outskirts of town coming back. Because when you lose something of value, you search for it. It's what you would do if you lost your credit card. What happens when you lose your credit card or miss place your phone, you turn over every single cushion in your couch and your entire house trying to find it. Maybe it slipped through the cracks. You contact every place that you visited, wondering if maybe you left it there. You search everywhere for it. You're driven internally by this passionate desire to find what was lost. And that's how God feels about sinners. That's the, the sense that God has towards people who have wandered away from the gospel or have rejected Jesus, rejected the invitation of God, and turned away from him. How does God feel about these people? God joyfully pursues them. This is a completely revolutionary idea for the time. Uh, the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of this day, they believed that God would forgive a repentant sinner who came to God, but they had no concept of a God who would go out to search for sinners. No idea that God would be so gracious as to pursue sinners. And sometimes we can slip into that mentality too, can't we? Sometimes you hear people describe God like he's happy to reject people who have turned away from him. Or maybe God would sort of like to give them the silent treatment or send them off into the wilderness with bitterness saying, okay, fine. And Jesus describes God in completely the opposite way. The searching shepherd, the seeking woman, the pleading father that's the God of the Bible. That is our heavenly Father. One of the very first images in Scripture is God seeking the lost. As, as we confessed earlier, even though Adam and Eve were hiding from God in their sin and shame, God set out to find them so that he could comfort them. God joyfully searches for sinners. Second, God joyfully forgives sinners. God joyfully 
forgives sinners. There's a joyful celebration when the lost sheep is found. Verses 5 and 6. When he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. There's a joyful celebration when the lost coin is found. Verse 9. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me. For I have found the coin that I had lost. And there's a joyful celebration when the lost son is found. Verse 23, bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Again, joyful celebrations. And according to Jesus, there's a joyful celebration in heaven whenever a sinner repents and is forgiven. Verse 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance or think they need no repentance. Verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. God joyfully forgives sinners. Again, this is mind-blowing, countercultural grace. That phrase, joy in heaven, is important for us. The religious leaders of Jesus' day taught that there would be joy in heaven, specifically joy in heaven at the judgment of sinners. One scholar writes this, that the rabbis taught about joy in heaven when irritating people were vanquished, when the wicked were crushed, And when the godless were condemned, joy in heaven over the downfall of the wicked. And we don't have to look too far to see parallels of that theology in certain Christian circles or even in our own hearts as we cherish the idea that God would be glad to strike down the people that we consider worthy of condemnation. Now, of course, the scriptures do teach that God will judge those who remain in their sin, those who reject Jesus, that don't repent of their sins. But throughout the Bible, God explicitly says that he is not happy to condemn. He's not pleased to condemn. Ezekiel 18.23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? Or Ezekiel 18.32, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. God loves to forgive, even if the price of forgiveness is extraordinarily high. Pay attention to how lavishly the people in our passage celebrated They they invited their friends, their family. There was food and music and dancing. This was a lavish celebration. You and I might just simply send a quick text off to our friends or family members saying, I found my keys, hashtag grateful. But these people throw a block party. They invest time and money into their joyful celebration. It was costly so costly that it seems foolish. 
And that's especially apparent in the, the story of the lost son. Unlike the sheep and unlike the coin, the son willfully, destructively engaged in sinful, hurtful behavior. He humiliated the father socially. He squandered the father's property. He defiled himself by going off into a foreign land, certainly a Gentile land, eventually becoming the servant of a Gentile, taking care of the quintessential Gentile animal, the pig, and is so degraded and so humiliated at this point in time that he longs to eat the food that pigs were eating. As a Jew, you could not get any lower than this. And so that's why when he comes to his senses, he comes up with this long, drawn-out repentance speech. And we can imagine him on the road back home going over it again and again in his head. He is ready to make a lengthy apology to his father, but the father is even more ready to extend costly, extravagant forgiveness to his son. Remember, the father has been searching the horizon, looking for any sign of his boy on the horizon, and one day he finally sees a familiar outline, someone that he recognizes far off in the distance, and he doesn't waste a minute. He immediately leaps into action. He takes off, running down the road putting himself at even more social shame because men of this time didn't run in public, but the father didn't care what other people thought about him. His son is coming home. And so he runs to the boy and smothers him in this giant hug and just lays kiss after kiss upon his head. The son tries to apologize but he doesn't even get a chance to give his entire speech before the father cuts him off. It's, it's incredible. Verses 21 through 23, here with me. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, hey, bring quickly all the things that we need to show my son forgiveness. Just think about that for a minute. Let that sink in. The father is so happy to extend forgiveness to his son that he doesn't even make the son give a comprehensive account of his sin. He doesn't even demand an in-depth repentance speech. Have you ever been approached by someone who's wronged you and they say, sorry, I'm sorry, but before you're willing to say, I forgive you, you ask the question, what are you sorry for? I want to know what you're apologizing for. I know I've done that before. We typically want a complete, in-depth confession. We want a whole account of the sin. This father doesn't. He doesn't make the son squirm. 
or humiliate him by making him delineate all of the bad things that he did, the father immediately communicates grace and then starts planning the party. God is like that. God joyfully forgives sinners even if the cost seems foolish. Even if the cost is the cross. Because that's the price of our redemption. Jesus dying on the cross. It seems like foolishness to do that for someone who is your enemy. And yet Jesus happily paid that price. Jesus joyfully, gladly paid the price for us and for our redemption. Hebrews 12, too, says that Jesus endured the pain and the shame of the cross because of the joy that was set before him. In other words, when he was on the cross, Jesus relished the idea of bringing many sons to glory through his saving work, God joyfully forgives sinners. And finally, God joyfully restores sinners. God joyfully restores sinners. The Father is not content to simply say, I forgive you. The Father immediately works to bring the whole family back together again. First, he restores the younger son's identity and brings him from an identity of shame and rejection to an identity of belonging and dignity. Listen to verse 22. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Each item in that list represents the son's restoration from his former humiliation, the best robe, clothing of a family member brought back in, not the rags of a former indentured servant to Gentiles. The ring, a symbol of authority and a place of identity within the family name, the shoes, a sign of his freedom because servants at that time would typically be barefoot. The father works to restore the younger son, and then the father works to restore the older son. The older son, the righteous son, the son who thinks that he doesn't have anything to repent of, the dutiful son who is out working in the field when the party begins. He missed the younger son's restoration, and when he finds out about it, he's not happy. He can't believe the father's foolish love for the brother. He, he can't even bring himself to say, my brother. He distances himself uh, from this human being with the worst accusations. This, your son, who devoured your property with prostitutes even though we don't know how the younger brother squandered the money. The older brother simply assumes the worst. He resents his brother because at the end of the day, he resents his father. The younger son said, please treat me like a servant. The older son says, 
you treat me like a servant. The older son has worked for the father, served the father, done his duty for the father. He's done it out of obligation, not love. And he thinks that he has held up his end of the family deal. And so he thinks that he deserves greater honor than this. But this is where the father's grace shines even brighter. Yet again, the father humbles himself. He personally goes out to the field to pursue his firstborn son. He speaks words of grace to him, son. My son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. Yet again, the father shows his delight in forgiveness. Verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate. We just had to celebrate. It was the only thing that we could do. It's so appropriate. And yet again, the father seeks restoration. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The older son in his vengeance bitterly spits out this your son. The father gently responds, this your brother. Your brother is home. It's the only thing that we can do to celebrate. It's an invitation for the older son to be restored into the family, just like he was inviting the younger son to be restored into the family. He gives a gentle rebuke, but then again extends this invitation, come back to us through humility, come back to us through grace. God loves to restore sinners. God loves to restore sinners who have rejected the gospel, and he loves to restore sinners who think that they've done nothing wrong. He loves to knit his family back together through humility and grace. God joyfully restores sinners. So this is how much God loves Salvation. God joyfully searches for sinners, forgives sinners, and restores sinners. What does this mean for us? I think this delightful passage gives three delightful application points for us. First, rejoice in your salvation. Rejoice in your salvation. These parables reveal God's love for sinners who don't deserve grace. Sinners like the tax collectors and the rebels who were crowding around Jesus. Sinners like me and like you. This, friends, is good news for us. God does not get tired of being gracious. God joyfully pursues you, no matter how far you've strayed from his ways. God joyfully forgives you, no matter how great your sin may be. And God joyfully restores you. He restores you into full fellowship with himself, giving you the identity of a son or a daughter of the king. And he restores you into his family, the church. God delights to save you. 
And so rejoice in your salvation. Second, rejoice in the salvation of others. Rejoice in the salvation of others. The Pharisees should have been rejoicing that tax collectors and sinners wanted to grow in love for God. Instead, the Pharisees resented Jesus for welcoming tax collectors and sinners, just like the older brother resented the father for his mercies. But if God truly delights to show grace to sinners, this makes God happy to show God grace to sinners, then we need to rejoice in the salvation of other people. Even if those other people made terrible decisions in their life, even if they don't look like ideal Christians in our eyes, they don't do the things that proper Christians should do, we need to know God is seeking all kinds of people to bring into his kingdom. And there are all kinds of people in his church who are on all kinds of walks of life. We need to embrace the Christians in our churches, in this church. We need to rejoice in their salvation because God is rejoicing. God is rejoicing in their salvation, and so we should too. We should delight in the salvation of other people, just like God does. So rejoice in your salvation. Rejoice in the salvation of other people. And finally, rejoice in the things that God finds delightful. Rejoice in the things that God finds delightful. One of the puzzling things about modern life in our wealthy society is the more that we own, the less happy we seem to be. And so there are all sorts of studies and programs that are aimed at making us more happy people, but this passage gives us a completely different direction. This passage says if you want to be happy, do the things that make God happy. Delight yourself in the things that God finds delightful. And as this passage shows, redemption makes God profoundly happy. And so join him in this happy work. Share the gospel. Seek out the people who are wandering. Extend forgiveness freely. Pursue reconciliation. Pursue restoration. Give grace to others. These are joyful activities because redemption is absolutely joyful. There's a story of a man who left his home during the Industrial Revolution. He wanted to get a job in a factory. And even though his family didn't want him to, he went anyway. He left for the big city, burning some relational bridges along the way. But the job didn't work out. Uh, and soon, pretty soon, he found himself in need. He decided to return home to try to repair the relationships with his family, to seek out refuge there, but he wasn't sure if his family would welcome him back. And so before he went, he sent them a letter. Here's what he said. Uh, he said, I'd like to come home if you'll have me. I'll be coming on the train, and if you're willing to receive me, just tie a white handkerchief in the tree by the train station. If I, if I see a white handkerchief on that tree by the train station, I know that you're willing to have me back, 
and I'll get off the train and come home, and if not, I'll stay on the train and keep going. So the day arrived, and he got on the train, and it was a tense trip. He didn't know what he would find tied to that tree by the train station at home. And so, so he went, and he kept watching. Pretty soon, his stop was coming near. He looked out the window, and he saw the tree. And there wasn't one handkerchief tied to the tree. No, the tree was covered in white handkerchiefs. The, the parents were so eager to have the boy home, to receive their son back, that they filled the entire tree with as many white handkerchiefs as they could possibly find. This was their visual representation of their desire, their passionate desire. This is how much we want you. One handkerchief doesn't, doesn't capture it all. It needs to be filled. And that's what complete, wholehearted, joyful redemption looks like. And that's what God offers to repentant sinners. At times, we may think that grace is tedious, trying work, but God doesn't. God says, I love it. I love my work. I love saving sinners. And so repent. Ask for forgiveness from the Lord. Live out a life of joyful gospel redemption and then enjoy the heavenly party that's thrown in your honor by a loving Father who delights to save. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your message of redemption and grace. Thank you for delighting in salvation, in our salvation, even if the cost seems like foolishness to us. The calculations of the world are not how you think. And we praise you for your grace. We ask that you would build us up in this grace. Help us to rejoice in our redemption. For those who are struggling with sin and shame this morning, I pray that you would help them to know that you never get tired of showing grace. Help us to come to you in that spirit. For those of us who are feeling possibly judgmental this morning, I pray that you would humble us. Teach us the things we need to repent of so that we can rejoice in the salvation of other people. Give us hearts like your heart that delights in grace. And help us to delight ourselves in the things that you find personally delightful. Make us the kind of people that extend mercy and grace and find joy in it, just like you have joy in redemption. We pray that you would do this great work in our lives so that we would enjoy you and enjoy the salvation that is ours in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.